You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 7th of December 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller. On today's show, will Armenians vote this weekend to confirm their revolution? My guests Carlotta Rebello, Melkin Charchoglian and Thomas Lewis will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including the Brexit TV debate that isn't happening after all, the arrest of a Chinese executive by Canadian police on an American request, and what colour will 2019 be? All is revealed. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle Welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Monocle's Carlotta Ribello and Melkin Charchoglian. And joining us from our Toronto bureau, Thomas Lewis. Welcome all. And we will start with Armenia, the people of which will vote this Sunday in snap parliamentary elections. Polls suggest that an enthusiastic endorsement is incoming for the My Step Alliance of Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan, the veteran journalist, protest leader and anti-corruption activist who ended up in charge following the country's remarkably affable revolution of earlier this year. Melkin, would you do us the favour, first of all, of reminding us briefly how we got to this point, how Nicole Pashinyan, who I suspect this time last year did not expect to be Prime Minister of Armenia this time this year, ended up in that position? You know, this time last year, Pashinyan was basically hiding from the feds and he was a persona non grata. But he managed to mobilise an enormous popular protest. He managed to inspire, you know, civic pride and responsibility in a country that generally is happy to be trodden on. Um, and since 1991, it has been controlled by effectively right-wing corrupt oligarchs who will do anything to sort of, you know, fatten their own pockets. Um, so we had the Velvet Revolution in the spring um, and Pashinyan forced himself into the office of prime minister. He effectively said either the parliament elects me or will continue protesting. So the parliament yielded on that point. But the parliament still composed of 50 of the 105 seats are Republican Party seats. So this is the... This is the old guard. This is the old guard. They've been in power pretty much since 1995. um, And they're all in their 50s and 60s. They're corrupt as hell. Um, The country will never change under them. So he has resigned effectively triggering a snap election, uh, which is on Sunday. And obviously, this puts his position uh, in in a precarious state. He might not get re-elected, but he's confident he will. I'm confident he will. And according to the latest polls, I think you said it was Gallup, 70%, you know, 70% landslide victory for his My Step Alliance. Uh, And that will allow him to completely change the parliament and actually push through some sort of uh, social democratic and anti-corruption agenda. It it is a curious story in many respects, Melkin. And just to follow that up, one of the things which intrigues me about it is you you describe the the outgoing power structure that Mr. Pashinyan has superseded as being this, this mob of appalling crooks who've been basically running the country since independence. And that's been a pretty similar dynamic across a lot of the the countries that emerged from the Soviet Union. It is unusual for those people to give it up quietly. Um, is this the calm before the storm? Because so far, I mean, the, 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 the protests happened, they were huge, and the reaction of the overstaying Republicans did seem to be, certainly from this distance, uh, well, okay then. I, I think so. I think they are literally on their last legs, and Armenia is in such a, such a poor state. Uh, you know, 
half the country, or I think uh, about about half the country lives in 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 state of poverty. The, the population is only three million. If they start if they start shooting and 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 killing and uh, you know suppressing these people, what's going to be left of the country? It's it's just a, a sort of skeleton electorate as it is. There's they th- these oligarchs have really nothing left to fight for. They won't be put in jail, I don't think. They'll merely just be you know kind of sidelined, and they'll be allowed to die their days, uh, live out their days. And, and then die. But I, I found it super interesting the uh, the same poll that uh, was the Gallup poll that was saying that 69% uh, for the alliance that it's 1.3 for the Republicans which I think is such an insane turnaround from a party that as you just described had been in power for uh, two decades if not more uh, for now being polling at just 1.3%. Uh, are, do you think they're like even risking not even having any MPs at this stage? Well, the the, the track record of their responses when it comes to, for example, fighting their own corner is very bad. Um, in, I think it was 1998, there was a parliamentary shooting um, for which supposedly the Republican Party is held responsible because it's believed that they incited these shooters. Uh, in 2008, they, um, protesters were killed when the Republican Party tried to uh, suppress another protest. If there was so much as a, a gunshot or a sign of retaliation from the Republican Party, I think it would be, uh, you know, the, the whole country would, would rise up. They, they'd storm the parliament and, and kill every single member of the Repu- Republican Party. I think they, they really have no option but to go along with this. Uh, Carlotta, the seamless link here, of course, is that you yourself come from a country, the modern variant of which was founded in revolution, although it'd be, uh, admittedly some time ago now, 1974, if I've got exactly. that right. Uh, this was the poor Portuguese revolution. Um, are there? Do there just come times? Do you think in a, in a country's history at which the the appetite, the demand for change is so overwhelming that even the most uh, determined, ruthless, and ossified old guard just just basically admits, yeah, okay, the game's up. Uh, yes, I mean, in the case of Portugal, uh, it wasn't, uh, even though it was a peaceful transition from uh, a dictatorship to democracy, it wasn't uh, exactly the old guard just giving up. But it's it's interesting when you observe, um, especially the younger democracies that have been unshackled from uh, right-wing and dictatorial regimes uh, in Europe, mainly over the past um, five decades, how it really comes back comes down to that boiling point where that is the only solution. There's no other way that you can get out of that situation. Uh, in the case of Portugal, I really do not see how, if the revolution hadn't happened, how we would have had change. I want to believe that now in 2018 would be a democracy, but perhaps it would look very different than what it, what it does today. One of the uh, bigger overlining um, overarching themes that continues to uh, carry on from those days is the fact that Portugal today doesn't have any sort of right-wing uh, movement or party. It just simply doesn't because it's still so fresh on everyone's memory um, and in the generations uh, still alive that fought that revolution that it simply doesn't allow for that sort of voice to emerge. Uh, Melkin, just a final thought on this because another great curiosity or at least it seems to me of what's happened in Armenia this year is that it's not the first such revolt or revolution which has happened on Russia's borders in the last 10 or 20 years. We've seen similar revolutions, the so-called colour revolutions in in Georgia, in Serbia, the attempted one in Belarus and Azerbaijan and other places. Um, Moscow has usually been extremely and obviously unenthusiastic about them. They've been pretty quiet so far about this one. Why is that? 
Because this revolution has, it's not about, it's not an anti-Russian revolution. Um, Armenia is a very small landlocked country. Um, it's surrounded by Azerbaijan, Iran and Turkey, all of which are inimical and have, they all have horrible histories together. Um, Armenia relies entirely on Russia acting as its protector. Uh, if if it lost Russia's support, it'd be, it'd be left completely exposed. And also Russia sends a lot of money. There's a huge Armenian diaspora in, uh, across Russia. Um, so P- Pashinyan has actually strengthened the relationship with Moscow since he's come into power because he knows that, you know, it'd be, it'd be nuts to reject it at this point. Whereas Georgia, you know, prosperous country has ports on the Black Sea, um, is able to make it on its own. That's why their revolution was about rejecting Moscow, whereas Armenia, it's very much an internal affair. Okay, well, let's look now at the UK, the fundamental future direction of which is currently being decided by people who can't plan a television debate. As members of Parliament debate ahead of a vote on Prime Minister Theresa May's Brexit deal on Tuesday, it had been suggested that a televised debate was in order so that leaders of political parties could reiterate positions which are, one, by now familiar to anyone who has been paying attention, and two, bear a debatable relationship to reality anyway. After a deal of arcane bickering, not that there's anything more important to discuss. It has now been decided that neither the BBC nor ITV will host, so therefore it isn't happening unless it is on Channel 4 in some shape or form. And really, who cares at this point? Carlotta, would you have watched? I would. Not because I wanted to be informed or learn anything new, I think. Just uh, as well, because you wouldn't have. Because <laughs> I wouldn't have at all. Uh, but I'm very anti-British in the sense that I quite enjoy seeing people embarrass themselves in public. <laughs> so, you say this. I, I, I think the lesson we have learned from the last couple of years is that the British have got over that. Oh yes, clearly, <laughs> clearly. Um, but uh, no, I think it would have been an interesting exercise to have two people that essentially have the same position uh, try to argue with the public that uh, they in, in fact do not. Um, I don't know what is more ridiculous, that uh, the BBC had to uh, cancel the debate because uh, the Prime Minister, Theresa May, and the leader of opposition, Jeremy Corbyn, couldn't uh, agree that that was the best format where they had the the two of them and then voices from uh, all the different sectors. So you would have someone from the people's vote, uh, which is Remain, someone um, talking uh, with the point of uh, the no deal, uh, Theresa's May deal, and... There was a fourth one. Um, uh, fourth, fifth. I, I, I don't know. I, I, my eyes kind of. It might have been renegotiating point. back with Brussels, if I'm not mistaken. They couldn't agree on that. Uh, then the ITV, ITV was like, okay, we'll get it. We'll get a debate, and it will be just one on one. Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn, and allegedly it is uh, Ten Downing Street that didn't agree with that format because it would have given too much time for the two of them to talk about the issues. So it's just as you say. How can we even trust? Well, we knew we couldn't already, but this just points that you can't really trust this government to do anything, let alone Brexit, if it can't even agree to a simple one-hour TV debate. I do take a certain amount of issue with your characterisation of Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn as having the same position. That's not quite true, because while Theresa May is a Remainer who's pretending she's a Lever, Jeremy <laughs> Corbyn is the other way. I, which one's he again? He's pretending he's in favour of Remain, but he's actually... That's the right, isn't I've got those the right yes, way around. Yes, exactly. Um, yes, we, we are a distance, we've been a distance through the looking glass for some time at this point. Uh, Melkin, was there at least anything to be said for this idea or is there anything to be said for a similar idea in order perhaps to reach people who did kind of zone out of this two years ago and frankly one can't blame them? Because 
one of the issues clearly is, especially if there is going to be another referendum on this, uh, is that polls do keep reporting that quite a lot of people think that no deal means nothing changes, that that's the status quo, whereas no deal is about as far from the status quo as it's possible to get. Yeah, uh, completely. I think the whole country is lost in these strange terminologies that they don't understand. And when Theresa May at Prime Minister's Question Time, which obviously everyone can watch, but obviously no one does, when she does <laughs> talk about this is this is the deal that we have, again, she talks in vague terms. She should stand up in front of the country on BBC and say, OK, this is what's happening to the single market. This is what's happening to the customs union. This is what's happening to the Irish border, border in clear terms. Um, I know it won't be pleasant for her because she's the most socially awkward person in the world. Uh, and Corbyn would probably knock around the first round but at least there'd be a chance for them to be held accountable to the public i want to read you something so as a eu citizen in this uh, wonderful limbo that uh, the uk has put me in uh, i receive emails from the home office with updates on my <laughs> well, status that's, that's, that's nice of them yeah uh, I what do you mean on your status <laughs> As an immigrant, okay. Um, yeah, like saying you don't need to do anything yet or... Um, uh, this red is alert, red alert. When the withdrawal agreement came out, this is like if it gets approved, like kind of boiling down those points okay, that's of quite what good. would mean, which is great. But after the, you know, the defeat she had in the Commons this week with the three crucial votes that uh, her government lost and now that no deal seems very likely to happen, uh, we got an email yesterday um, from um, the Home Office, EU Settlement Scheme Update. Um, and... Um, just saying, blah, blah, uh, the Secretary of State for exiting the European Union set out information in the event of a no deal. And one of the points I, I, is just is great. Um, the UK government confirms that the Home Office will continue to look to grant status rather than refuse in line with UK commitment to be more generous. It's like, OK, thank you very much. Yeah. So only if the worst scenario happens, we're out like we're out of our depth no com no deal whatsoever there's no guarantee that's the only way your immigration policy gets a bit better and more generous well see i'm i mean you're, you're <laughs> complaining and not without reason but i I'm, I'm frankly insulted as a commonwealth citizen resident in this country i never hear from these people at all <laughs> i think that's a privilege you're not missing <laughs> not out a, not, much. not a thing not a thing years since i last heard from them they don't write they don't they they they, they forget my birthdays nothing at christmas maybe don't tell them you're here andrew <laughs> yeah I, sh I should probably stop talking about this now uh, melkin what's actually just for fun What's actually going to happen on Tuesday when this nonsense idea deal thing that Theresa May has cooked up, which absolutely nobody likes, gets put to Parliament? I think it's going to get flat out rejected. Um, as, as I understand, and there have been some of the TV channels have followed various whips around Parliament, seeing just how they enact this process of whipping votes. And it was no one was going with the whips there's so much rebellion even in the conservative party that um i can't see this going through and then what 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 happens next a constitutional crisis uh, the queen suddenly waves her hand across the battlefield god knows it's all to play for uh, Carlotta, just a, a final thought on this one before we, we move mercifully on. What do you think is actually going to happen first? Brexit being resolved one way or the other or the sun dying? <laughs> I think the latter. On this <laughs> which, which sun are we talking about? The tabloid or the sun? Either. Yeah, either. Uh, no, uh, I mean, um, it is quite... Uh, a horrible reality we, or alternative reality we are living in at the moment. And... I've never seen a country so willingly, like, 
self-inflicting a wound this deep uh, in its own status as the status that the UK had in the world and in Europe as, you know, had its act figured it out. People looked at the UK as a place where, you know, sensible gentlemen with nice accents solve things. And actually, you know, it, it's it's not that way at all. And um, I really don't know what's going to happen on Tuesday. I think uh, Mel is right. Malcolm is right when he says that uh, there's very is very unlikely that this will pass and there is no time for renegotiation. So really, unless there's another election and someone finally decides to say vote for me and I will stop this, there's no way out. What? Well- this might be quite a controversial opinion, but I do think, and I'm just regurgitating the words of that wonderful maniac philosopher, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, that, <laughs> that if if a country wants to effectively, you know, scar itself, shoot itself in the foot, it should be allowed to do so. We, we have democratically, you know, eviscerated ourselves and we must continue down, down that line and maintain the democratic laws. Well, on what I'm sure is the first invocation of Rousseau in Midori House's history, we are going to take a short break. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Miller, along with Carlotta Ribello and Malcolm Chardoglian. We will be joined after the break by Thomas Lewis from our Toronto Bureau. For a global perspective and some fresh ideas direct to your door on business, culture and design, not to mention fashion, travel and much more, subscribe today and join the world of Monocle. As a valued subscriber, you'll get a 10% discount in all Monocle shops and our online store. You'll also be the first to receive exclusive invitations to our events and have full access to the magazine archives. In addition, all one-year subscriptions come with a free limited edition Monocle tote bag. With four bespoke subscription packages to choose from, you decide what suits you and your lifestyle best. What are you waiting for? Visit monocle.com and subscribe today. You are back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Carlotta Ribello and Melkin Charchoglian. And from our Toronto bureau, imminently Thomas Lewis. And let's look now at Canada, which has been presented with a possible diplomatic pickle by the diligence of its police. Meng Wanzhou, chief financial officer of mobile phone cons... Mobile phone concern. Who writes this? Huawei. And daughter of the company's founder was detained at Vancouver Airport on Saturday on an extradition request issued by the United States, who want a word on charges as yet unknown. Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has today insisted that his government had no involvement in the arrest, though it's difficult to imagine Beijing replying along the lines of, well, that's okay then. Uh, Thomas, in Toronto, how big a thing has this been in Canada? She was arrested on Saturday. The story came came out on Wednesday. It's been um, a huge story here, Andrew, in Canada. Huawei has been at the centre of a lot of media coverage here for some time now uh, in terms of its ambitions and uh, nefarious or otherwise, frankly, about what it uh, kind of wants from having this kind of big presence technologically and economically in Canada. I think the relationship between China and Canada has also been a rather big topic for Justin Trudeau for some time as well. He has, for his entire premiership pretty much 
been trying to forge a trade deal directly with Beijing, which has hit several hurdles from Beijing's side. Um, so this whole uh, recent story, the arrest on Saturday, as you say, uh, is really a pretty complicated situation for Justin Trudeau. Uh, it was revealed yesterday in a press conference that he was made aware that this arrest was imminent. Um, he has been forced to, to make pretty clear, however, uh, that there was no political involvement from Canada's side um, in, in anything to do with that arrest. Uh, we are, of course, looking at the U.S.-Canada relationship in a kind of new era for that as well. We saw at the G20 summit in Buenos Aires recently the signing of the, the new NAFTA trade deal, uh, and that was such a fraught process that it really did sort of take U.S.-Canada relations to something of the brink as well. So there's really a lot at play here, and the Canadian media is doing its best, I think it's fair to say, to try and pick as, unpick any of those, as many of those strands as possible. Uh, Thomas, do you think Beijing, or does it seem like Beijing, is going to be much mollified by Justin Trudeau's uh, earnest invocations of the separation between the executive and the judiciary? Um, I don't think so, actually. I think, you know, Beijing, of course, I think is seeing this as a, as a fight with the US predominantly, and whether it wants to characterise Canada's involvement in this as Canada being a bit of a puppet, I suppose, in some ways, to the US's demands, given that the fight between the US and China is so acute right now. Um, I think, you know, that will do no favours for Canada, really, uh, if it wants to, to pursue a closer relationship in terms of trade, um, given that especially we're looking at the economic forecast for Canada, and it is expected to slow the national economy in the year to come. At the moment, it is the second fastest growing economy in the G7, but it's been hit pretty hard by um, oil prices and ongoing economic uncertainty in Alberta, which is the oil and gas produ uh, producing heartland uh, here in Canada. Uh, it really is a very, very tricky position. I think Justin Trudeau will continue this message that, um, look, this is the, the letter of the law that's being followed here. And wider politics between uh, the US and China, uh, it really isn't sort of getting involved or taking sides. But that is kind of a difficult message to try and convince either the US or China from Canada's point of view, I think, uh, for it to sort of uh, really state that, that it is kind of not playing politics here and that it is just following the letter of the law. So it really is quite a complicated situation here from Canada's point of view. Carlotta, leaving aside what may or may not be at issue here, and we don't yet know what the charges are, should Western governments in general be more worried about Huawei than they presently are? We have seen some taking action. Both Australia and New Zealand have been unkeen on the idea of Huawei from providing 5G uh, in either of those countries. I think, I think so. I think uh, there should be um, more voices, at least of, like, leaders, prime ministers and presidents, uh, if not obviously uh, blocking uh, Huawei the same way New Zealand and Australia have done, at least voice that concern. Because right now what we're getting is the ones that speak up uh, become dominate the discourse and you don't have anyone just even... Um, wondering uh, whether or not we should be going down this route and we should be allowing a company like that to provide 5G in a different nation. Uh, just to come back to you finally on this one, Thomas, does anyone have any idea what's actually going to happen next? Are Canada going to hand her over to the United States? 
Uh, we have absolutely no idea yet, Andrew, and that's, I think, the sort of really big question because that will sort of, you know, from the politics and the optics of this, that will kind of, I think, you know, push Canada into a corner either way if they do sort of allow the extradition to take place. Uh, and as you say, we don't know exactly kind of what the details of these charges are yet. Then from China's point of view, Canada will be seen to be siding with the US. Uh, you know, if it does block the extradition, then the US will, uh, you know, quite rightly take up its concerns with Canada. And given that we're just really sort of seeing those relationships being mended right now, you know, the fragility of that, I think, is not something Canada wants to risk. So um, I, I really not quite sure how, uh, you know, the, the arrest of a, of a senior sort of business person, the diplomatic fallout of it either way could be really quite acute, I think, on all, all three sides of this. Okay, well, finally tonight, uh, a radio discussion of an exclusively visual subject. So this will be fun. Uh, Pantone, the colour arbiter to the design trade, has announced its colour of the year. And to be clear, when they say colour of the year, they mean next year, as telling people what colour they should already have painted their walls isn't going to shift much paint. The lucky shade this year is Living Coral. Um, and Melkin, because I can see you frantically Googling it there on your laptop, I want you to describe Living Coral. Well, I think it looks a bit like Millennium Pink. Exactly. Which was, the color that <laughs> which was a colour last year, right? This year, yeah. No, wasn't wasn't last year ultraviolet or was that the year no, before? No, Millennium Pink. Because last year, pink. that's exactly what I thought. It is absolute beep. I mean... The, these colors detract from absolute from actual quality of design it just means that somebody can say oh look i have a, a chair and it's in pink and it and it and it's beautiful simply because it is pink but actually you, you, you know where's the pink? quality it's where's it, the design it's more of an orangey no thing, it's the same it? thing as millennium pink it's just a whole marketing ploy really well i mean well obviously it's a marketing ploy and we're talking about it so it's a successful <laughs> marketing ploy it looked more orange to me it looks a little bit orange. So it's a little bit orange with a little bit of pink. Carlotta, where are you on the pink-orange controversy, which is currently sundering this studio? I'm sorry, but I have to go with pink. I think it's... Come on. Yes, um, and yeah, I think it's pink. I don't think it's orange <laughs> at all. And I, I don't understand uh, why they picked this colour, because it's so similar to the one from last year. It's Clearly, orange. this is why I'm not a designer. It's definitely orange. It's, it's orange. Uh, Thomas in Toronto... Um, throw me a bone here. It's it's orange, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Well, I'm a big orange fan, actually, Andrew. So I'm going to get, say that in a very highly scientific way. I think, you know, look, I think, I think orange is due a bit of a renaissance sort of anyway. So if we want to call it orange, I think we should. Because I think, you know, orange is such a, such a sort of sunny colour, whatever season of the year it is. Um, I have quite a nice sort of retro orange sort of chair in my house that's become one of my most treasured possessions. I'm not sure that Pantone will be calling me up to ask for that an example for next year's prize but um yeah i'll i'll i'll, I'll join team orange with you on this one well, um, well, 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 how so are we going to settle this <laughs> well we're, we're get, I, I mean i i'm the host so i get a casting vote as well i'm pretty <laughs> sure vote. well exactly no i'm, I'm the I'm only s- woman so I, I think i get more <laughs> but, but you must agree that this is just nonsense because well, it's I, just I such a loud unpleasant color well you see the thing is you say that the reason i was briefly excited when i thought it was orange before everybody told me it was pink uh, was that i actually thought my, my hallway is suddenly fashionable uh, uh, sorry andrew i'm afraid you are far away from fashionable <laughs> because because that is actually more or less the well at least on the page i'm looking at that is more or less the color of my hallway it really defines the generation that we live in everything is just like a what? loud color which allows people to charge you more 
for random things like coffee. Also, also, I really want to know if it's like one person that comes up with these ridiculous names, if they have a, oh, yes. like a brainstorming session for 12 months and at the end of the year, we got it, this is living coral. Uh, I just, uh, they're always so ridiculous. It's a wise man who lives in a cave in Tibet and they do a pilgrimage to him every year. I, I was preferring to think it was just it was just one hatful of adjectives and one hatful of nouns, and 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 they just got a, a monkey or a psychic octopus or something to to, to pick one from each. Sounds likely. Uh, also known as the marketing department. <laughs> <laughs> um, d- d- does anybody, uh, Thomas? I'll ask you. Were any colours unlucky? I mean, you seem to have come across as fairly broadly living coral, if I may say so. But w- was any can anything consider itself unfortunate to have missed out? Well, that's the nicest thing anyone said to me all day, Andrew, so thanks for that. I'll take that as a compliment. Um, I think, well, obviously, people find a lot of sort of colours quite divisive, I guess. Clearly. Um, we're on the verge, we're <laughs> on the verge of blows here. <laughs> uh, well, I can sense that from across the, across the Atlantic here. Um, I think, you know, whichever colours should maybe get their sort of moment in the, the sun. I guess sort of, you know, there was, I guess red was sort of a big sort of, you know, feature wall kind of colour back in the early 2000s. And thankfully, you know, that... You're, you're, you're just looking at the Canadian flag hanging on the wall and winging it at this point, <laughs> aren't you? Am. And, yeah. uh, yes, exactly. We've just decked out the Toronto Bureau in all its Christmas finery, so there is a lot of red around here right now. But I think red's a good colour, and I suppose there are plenty of sort of um, a big classic red, I think, should is, you know, I know it is Christmas, but we should um, maybe give that its, its moment too. And yeah, you know, Canada has, has made quite a success of having red as its national colour. <laughs> so, uh, so yes, go Canada on that score too. Well, on that instructive note, it does bring us to the end of today's show. Thomas Lewis, Malcolm Chachoglian and Carlotta Ribello. thank you for joining us at Midori House. It was produced by Tom Hall, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco, Martha Libri and Nick Moniz. Our studio manager was Kenya Scarlett. Music next at 1900. It's the menu with Marcus Hippie. I'm back with more on the day's big stories on the daily at 2200. Midori House returns on Monday at 1800 London. I'm Andrew Mullet. Thank you for listening. Thank you.